Welcome back, guys. This is the 23rd episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. Joining me this month for our first ever episode recorded remotely is Austrian DJ and producer Susanna Kirschmeier, also known as Electric Indigo. Susanna has been involved in electronic music since the 90s, first as a DJ in her native Vienna and then in Berlin, where she is perhaps best known as the founder of Female Pressure, an international online database for women and female identifying DJs and musicians. But Susanna has a long history with sound and creativity, performing live in unique spaces and in unique ways that showcase her often avant-garde listening music. While in the studio, she's known for her use of techniques like granular synthesis to manipulate voices into music. Her most recent album, Ferrum, saw her recording and processing the sounds of different metals, an experiment in noise and sound. In this conversation, we delve into experimentalism and how it influences her unique approach to music. Just a note that because this episode was recorded remotely, there may be some discrepancies with the audio quality. So thanks in advance for your understanding and enjoy the episode. interview for the series so I'm hoping it's gonna be okay how's it going in your quarantine ah well it's it's not too bad I mean it's a bit weird because I won't be able to go back home for a while at least until 13th of April so um and I, I did not come here prepared for such a long stay. I wanted to stay only five days. <laughs> and that's what I packed. Uh, and now it's going to be, it's more likely to going to be five weeks instead of uh, five days. Yeah. We'll see. But I'm fine. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. A little bored, uh, but good. Yeah. Hoping that this all gets resolved soon. Of course, I was reading a lot of your interviews while I was preparing for this conversation. Um, and when speaking about your early days and your first sort of experimental performance with, uh, with Mia in 2002, um, you said that the performance brought you to realizing a tendency that you shared with many other techno artists that you love to indulge in the search for sounds. So can you tell me a bit about your own kind of personal search for sounds? How has that evolved over the years? Well, um, my tools have changed for sure. So I'm constantly trying to learn uh, new equipment and new ways to create. Um, I get more used to the stuff I adopted earlier and I, I'm immediately like trying to refine and try to find additional things and additional tools so uh, the yeah the the i don't know the 
search for sounds uh, is always there, you know. It's it's like sometimes it's easy to lose myself in it uh, because it, it becomes after some hours or so like trying to hear differences in slightly changed parameters becomes more and more difficult. <laughs> and uh, there there is a fun and I guess rather typical situation when you try to mix down a track and at the same time you think the hi-hat is too loud but it's also too low <laughs> at the same time that's a, a sure sign for uh, hey it's time to take a break <laughs> but uh, of course I mean you know listening and listening what what uh, devices and synthesizers can do is just a lot of fun and it's it's part of what I like about uh, making music and creating music and um, yeah so that's always part and uh, I don't know how if it has changed that much uh, per se I think it's it's still the same kind of excitement there when you were talking about when you're in the studio and you're kind of you know listening to something over and over again like do you enjoy that not always. <laughs> Sometimes it becomes it becomes a bit uh, um, annoying or even even uh, painful because it's not getting where where I want it to be. Um, and yeah, no, it's not always fun. It's not like pu pure. Um, joy and <laughs> pure entertainment it's uh, sometimes it feels like like a very hard exercise uh, but that's part of it I think and and uh, somehow you know when you constantly try out new things uh, of course you you always like also approach like dead end roads and and you have to go back or or just forget about certain ideas or certain things that you tried out but that's that's at the core of uh trial uh, or trying things out you've previously said that uh you always sort of thought of production and djing as very different tools, I guess. So can you talk a bit about how the search for sound is different in these two fields? Like, how are you searching for sound as a DJ? And how is that different to how you're searching for sound as a producer? Like, I imagine with DJing, it's a lot more like uh, searching for tracks, I guess, like completed sounds, would you say? Absolutely, yes. Uh, it's definitely that uh, when I look for music that I like to DJ, um, I'm probably less critical than with with my own stuff uh it's i'm i'm looking for a certain quality in sound or just parts of the track that i like or a groove that i like and uh there is there is a lot i can i can use and a lot that i like um when I make my own music, it's it's um, a lot more limited in a way. So, um, and the approach is completely different. So, I usually have a a certain idea of 
or a sort of concept uh, when I start to create a new work. And I go from there and try to develop like the 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 basic material or or the the palette of sounds that I want to use for a certain work. Um, whereas as a as a DJ, I go through uh, all the promos I get <laughs> I get sent, uh, and then I also look in in, in certain like um, online stores. Uh, and listen to stuff there, or I listen to to links that people send me, and uh, so the uh, yeah, as you said, I mean the work is very different for me. It's it's a very different approach. And so I guess like when you're producing, you're more looking for like the basic sort of building blocks uh, of sound, I guess. Um, and so what would you say drove you to searching for sounds that are beyond the realm of like what you can create with typical hardware or software or instruments like what was the motivation behind kind of broadening that horizon the motivation of limiting my source material and taking the challenge of creating a, um, a wide variety of sounds that from audio recordings uh, that are not like usually or not typically used for uh, creating like um, the kind of sounds that that I want to use is that I like the limitation and I like the challenge because um, usually when working with a with a music production software the possibilities are endless and that is kind of overwhelming so um it's like sitting in front of a blank paper and you have no idea like where it should go or where where you should start and not even it's not even sure what kind of uh format you want to write like should it be uh, a joke or a, a, a novel <laughs> or uh, or a news or anything in between um, <clears throat> and with with a con- concept or with a conceptual approach uh, it becomes much easier for me to proceed uh, it, it really like helps me to initiate the creative process and uh, apart from when I when I started to work w- with this kind of approach, um, that was with uh, yeah using using spoken languages and uh, making music out of that. And the first important piece I made with this with this technique was in 2012, and the work is called Chiffre. I used uh, yeah recordings of my friends and friends of friends counting from zero to 20 <laughs> in their mother tongues. And and I really loved this combination of uh, having so much very uh, personal flavor because it's, it's their individual voices and uh, languages. But in a in a very neutral on a very neutral ground, and to to recombine this and uh, creating something out of it, um, 
I just like the idea, I guess, and and it, it it's inspirational for me. But from there, like a lot of similar things or quite a few similar things started. Um, and as I said, I found it I found it really like um, very rewarding uh, to restrict myself and uh, to to see what I can I can do with with limitation. It's more rewarding than uh, to to go crisscross through all the possibilities you usually have. When you were working with these different spoken words, like the techniques that you used to then turn that into music, was that is that a technique that you already knew previously, or like I guess how did you? Uh, yeah, how did you kind of come up with the idea of how to manipulate these voices? Like, was it by reading or studying, I guess, new methods or speaking to other musicians? Or did you just kind of jump in and, and see what happens? I kind of jumped in and saw what happened. I mean, there is uh, there are some very obvious techniques, and um, this these are like... Uh, digital samplers, of course, where you can throw in the audio file and then play it back at different pitches or in different speeds. Um, but uh, there is also a very nice device that taught me granular synthesis, and that is Robert Henke's Max for Life device granulator. And um, it is just very... It was very inviting for me to use because the interface is kind of inviting you to uh, drop some audio file in the in the display. It's like a really it's really easy drag and drop, and uh, then you see the waveform in, in on on the little screen within the device, and uh, you see where it's playing back, and so it. it it's very easy and, and kind of like uh, it teaches you at the same time because you see what is actually going on and how how it works. And so I got into this, uh, like learning by doing, as always, uh, into this technique, uh, granular synthesis, which is has been around uh since since the late seventies, I would say, as a as a a sound synthesis method, but it was new to me <laughs> a few years ago. I did some autodidactic uh, things as always and uh, learned with granulator. Um, yeah, and it's it's fun for me personally. Like I love the idea of experimenting with something like visual art, for example. Um, I love the idea of doing that, but I just don't think that I have that kind of seed of creativity. Like, I feel like I would very much think I don't know what to do. I think there's a certain type of creativity that allows you to experiment. So like, what advice would you have for someone who wants to become more experimental in their sound or like wants to discover a new, a new way of producing? Maybe cross-reference another area that interests you. For me, it was, um, I, I've always been fond of languages and, and uh, linguistics. <laughs> That's something I, I studied for, for a couple of years. Uh, 
and the the differences in languages is just uh, something that interests me and inspires me as well. And another thing uh, that that is relevant for for this Chiffre project is actually what motivates me within the whole electronic music scene and and techno music scene. And this is really like a strong motive uh, is that the scene is so international and uh, that I can relate to people who come from very different countries and very different cultural backgrounds who talk different languages. And even though uh, we have uh, language barriers to a certain degree, uh, sometimes more and sometimes less, even though we can relate uh, also through the music and through club culture, whatever you want to call it. So uh, this is a very strong and, and, and beautiful feature of uh, electronic music scene. And uh, I guess that that was part of the reason why I had so much fun working with these recordings, because it, it's kind of a, a very obvious manifestation of the internationality of the scene and the connections that I got and how I am involved in, in, in this like big and very diffuse uh, network or swarm of people around the globe. I think any approach that goes in a direction where you can incorporate something else than uh, what is the more generic way to, to make electronic music or to make music in general, um, no matter what, uh, what area it comes from, can be very rewarding. Maybe you want to work with literature or maybe there, there, there is some like more traditional fine arts or composer or uh, art form or even um, not art but science for example uh, all this can be super super yeah inspirational and uh, can give you ideas of how to approach and then maybe you want to try out uh, some techniques that come from a different subject or or area and you adopt it in your own way uh, this could maybe lead to something rewarding as well going back to your performance uh in 2002 i think it was with uh mia tabelka um, you said that this performance kind of allowed you to perform in the same way that you were working in the studio, like, you know, doing a lot more exploration and kind of repetition of, of like listening to something and then kind of seeing where it, where it went. Can you speak a bit about this performance and I guess what it looked or sounded like in comparison to your studio sessions or how it was different? It's it's so far away <laughs> for me. Uh, yeah, but it was it was a start of a uh, of something. Um, well, uh, just you know, back in the days, I used to work with hardware only, with analog synthesizers and drum machines, and I had very limited equipment. Um, I I had two drum machines and two synthesizers that I used for that project. 
that was it. Um, and yeah, I learned uh, definitely. I learned a lot uh, doing doing this, and I learned about a lot about uh, improvising with other people because that means you listen to what the other person is doing or the other pe persons are doing, and uh, you can sometimes lean back and and let let it happen and let the others take over and then you step back in you don't have to be like when you play alone or when you dj uh you, you have to always like take control and with improvisation i think it's quite interesting that uh you can step back sometimes during during you perform and uh just listen or uh just let let it take a different direction and and be a bit less active and then you come back in um but other than that other than these like experiences in in playing live in in a in an improvisational way uh the these concerts with with me are not really that relevant anymore for me so i'm i'm an, at a very very different place right now and i i work in a very different way so um yeah it's even it's it's kind of hard to remember what it was exactly and so when you say that you're working in a very different way today um is that something that you can Describe like what exactly is different about about your process today. Well, I'm I'm working mostly in the digital domain nowadays, so my tools have changed completely, and um, most of the things that I need for making music are within my laptop. So it's it comes out of the box, so to say, mm -hmm. and uh, additional. Uh, to this is just like uh, one app that I like to use on the iPad. It's Borderlands Granular. And uh, so the, all the interfaces have changed completely. I don't I don't play keyboards on the, on a synthesizer anymore and I don't do step sequencing on the drum machine anymore. So I, all this has has really changed a lot. The interaction, as well as as uh, the means of uh, sound uh, creation. Uh, one hardware t piece uh, is still in use, or is is still like similar to what I used uh, back in the days. It's a little uh, reverb unit, hardware unit. Um, that I always take with me for live performances because I really like the the strangeness of its sound. It's an even tight uh, stompbox uh, reverb unit, um, and there is one very bizarre, huge uh, reverb where I like to play live with the with the size of the reverb, and then like. Oh, the, the outcome are like all these like pitch shifting kind of weird sounds. <laughs> so uh, 
that's like the only piece of hardware that that I usually use, and uh, apart from the MIDI controllers that I need to to play live. So the whole setup is different, and uh, I also do, if possible, I do a lot of multi-channel sounds, so surround sound, either either quadraphonic or more channels and uh, so there is a whole other dimension to creating my sounds for example these uh, these early life acts with Mia all the synthesizers I used were, were monophonic so it wasn't even stereo <laughs> and now I'm, I'm often playing with uh, I don't know four channels or six channels or eight channels or even more and uh, yeah, so the um, spatial placement uh, is is another interesting topic for me, and um, yeah, constantly trying to improve this and evolve there. It seems like maybe the process has been kind of streamlined or easier. Well, in any case, I learned a lot, and I'm. I think I'm, I've become much better at what I'm doing than I, I used to be. So it's definitely easier because uh, when I started to make music myself, at first I didn't have a studio, not even at home. Uh, so I started to buy a couple of synthesizers, uh, but I did not have a proper mixing desk at first. So the only way I actually could make music was at other other people's studios. And that was in, I'm talking about the 1990s, so that's a long time ago. Um, at the same time, I was really busy touring as a DJ. So usually for, well, for about 10 years or, or a bit more, I was playing like two to four gigs every week and usually like these gigs in different countries and sometimes different continents within one week. So I was away a lot of the times and when I got back home uh, for for two or three days a week, then I, I would rather like wash my clothes and... Uh, I don't know, go to the bank and do bureaucratic stuff that I had to do um, rather than, you know, sit in the studio. And then when you're new to uh, or when you don't have a lot of practice when making music, it takes you a long time. Like probably everyone can relate to that. Like when you're not used to a software and uh, you use it once and then you slowly get into it and then you don't use it, let's say, for two months and then you start using it again and you have to remind yourself, um, how, how do I enlarge this part? Uh, what's the shortcut? So you have to relearn it every time you, you, you continue working. And, and that is an extremely slow process. It took me like a really, really long time, at least 10 years, if not more, to, to somehow get, to somehow learn the, the few equipment that I had. And then uh, I had to start to learn the, the digital audio workstation that I'm still working with, which is Ableton. And 
there were like a lot less tutorials around or I don't know if there was a tutorial at all in and I think that was maybe 2002 or 2003 when I, I started to use Ableton so all the 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 ways how you can learn a new software or any other tool uh, has become different and a lot easier nowadays. So if I, I learn a new software nowadays, I find my way around it uh, a lot quicker than, let's say, 20 years ago or 15 years ago because there are all these tutorials and there are so many people asking the same questions, so you right. can easily find it online. Um, that was different back in the days, and it just took me a long time um, to, to get into it. So nowadays, I feel like I'm into it. I know I don't have to think about how to route uh, a track into a return and back for some multi-channel purposes, etc. So I, I, I'm, I'm on top of most of my tools that, that I use, and that's a very, uh, very uh, nice situation <laughs> to be in. And therefore, I would definitely agree it has become a lot easier for me. I can put more energy into into fine-tuning the creation than just, you know, finding the right way how to to do some basic stuff. <laughs> but it still must take some patience, I guess, because, like, it's not... Because you're doing something sort of experimental, for lack of a better word, it's not going to sound perfect right away. Like, there's still a learning curve no matter how good you get at it. I mean, it's 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 really hard to determine what is a perfect. I think there is no such thing as a perfect sound, or it never sounds perfect because it, there are always like occasions when it doesn't sound that good. Uh, <laughs> but uh, definitely, still there is there is a learning curve, and sometimes there's also a uh, I would say the opposite uh, destruction curve or <laughs> a curve of destruction when you're quite you know you find I don't know you find a nice groove and then you try to refine it and all that you do within two days is you destroy the initial idea completely and it's uh, it doesn't make any sense anymore and you have to throw it away and start something something completely new <laughs> that is also part of the game um so just going back to granular synthesis uh you mentioned already a bit about how you discovered it um but can you explain about what this production method entails just for listeners who might not be aware of it already mm -hmm. well uh granular synthesis uh takes little little parts of audio, uh, the so-called grains, and these parts have a length of usually something between maybe 50 or one and 150 milliseconds, uh, and uh, rearranges these grains to something that uh, becomes a proper sound. 
So this is like the shortest possible explanation. Uh, 50 milliseconds standing alone are not really a sound at all. It's just a little noise. But once you start to uh, layer these grains and uh, add maybe some filtering over it and, and, and uh, uh, an envelope uh, for amplification, then it starts to become a real sound. So the, the raw material, therefore, can be some sort of audio that has very little to do on the, on the surface with what comes out of it. So let's say uh, you use uh, a word like five, and then maybe you just use that little part of five that has the most resonance uh, somehow. <laughs> and uh, then you start to, to uh, just take this super short part and uh, put one, one of these grains, so you double these grains and you multiply these grains. Um, it is, to a certain degree, uh, comparable with uh, resampling because... With sampling, you also take parts of existing audio files and multiply it or, or play it back at a different speed. But in, in granular synthesis, uh, the, the parts are usually a lot smaller and uh, they are, are layered and, and processed in a different way. So uh, there, is some, there is some difference to it. And then uh, if you have a synthesizer that uses granular synthesis, let's say like the granulator, you can just play notes as with any other synthesizer. So you can play chords and, and uh, whatever you want to do with it. Can you explain a bit about how you used granular synthesis to kind of distort or play with the human voices and spoken language. I know you did this for a few projects. You mentioned Shifla already. Uh, Morpheme, I think, was another one, and also your debut album. So how were these processes different, or like, what did you learn from doing it the first time that kind of helped you or changed things in your process for the second and third projects? Well, I learned that there are certain limitations. If, for example, I use the recording of only one person, if that person has a very distinct way of talking with using, maybe of talking in a very monotone way, then it's hard to, to create a lot of different sounds out of uh, this one recording. So for creating a lot of different sounds and a lot of different timbres, uh, then it will be better to have different people talking because uh, people have different voices and different ways of pronunciation and also different languages have different sounds. So some languages are very good for percussive sounds and others might be okay for that as well, but not as good probably. Um, then, uh, what else? What else did I did I learn? Uh, I think that there is. Uh, yeah, at first I thought really that I could do 
Well, maybe I could. It's not only that the raw material is a limitation for what kind of sounds I can create from it, but of course also the tools are. For example, the granulator that I used for all these pieces that you just mentioned, uh, the granulator is very specific in its sound characteristics. Uh, it never sounds clean, for example. There's, uh, it, it's, it's always somehow a bit fuzzy or a bit dirty in a way or, uh, yeah, grainy. And there, are, there, there would be other means um, to, to process audio recordings that get like a different sound characteristic. And this is what I actually did with a new album with Ferrum. I also used granular synthesis a lot and uh, the granulator, but not only the granulator as in previous pieces. I, I started to, to actually use the, the sampler and the simpler in life <laughs> a lot. It's, these are like uh, quite basic instruments that come, come with, uh, with Ableton Live. And uh, there, there's actually really a lot of stuff that you can do because uh, there, there, there are very, very nice options for um, um, modulating pitches and all sorts of parameter that you have within the, the instrument. So the characteristic becomes, becomes a lot different than, uh, for example. And uh, as I already mentioned, uh, also with this iPad app that I like to use, Borderlands Granular, uh, again, the sound is, is different. So nowadays the learning process was that with only the granulator, uh, I won't be able to create a very wide range of very distinct sound qualities. But no matter what I do, I mean, it's quite re it's 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 quite uh, good and great what I can do, but uh, for cleaner sounds or for some other properties, I will have to use uh, different tools. Mm -hmm. um, so that was part of the learning thing. And on the other hand, what I learned was that you don't need a very good recording to create some interesting sounds out of it. It actually it doesn't matter much. Like any recording, like be it uh, a very uh, low quality MP3 with a lot of compression and a lot of hiss in it and distortion maybe, then that is the quality of the recording and you can still do some great sounds with it. I mean, it seems to me that like with granular synthesis, it's like opening a whole other layer of possibilities for music creation. Like there's like X, Y, and Z ways to make music, but then granular synthesis is almost like the creation of new sounds with which you can still do X, Y, and Z ways to turn those sounds into music. Is that kind of like daunting for you to have like so much possibility in what you can do? Um, it's distracting. It's sometimes maybe daunting because if you think, well, there are some, I'm not, that way really because I'm, 
I, I guess my ambition is not going in that direction that I want to show off as much technicality as possible. Uh, other people are more like that, but uh, if I were like that, then it would be more daunting because I would, I would have fear of missing out like some great techniques that other people use and that I could use too, and that I should master somehow. And I don't have that ambition that much, but I definitely see that. So if you if you think other oh, like other people are talking about this great plugin and I don't have it, but I need it to you know, to be able to make good music. Uh, that's usually uh, a, a big mistake. That's simply not true and. Uh, that goes for for the hype with uh, with modular <laughs> systems as well. Like these units are very addictive, and the Eurorack modules. And usually, like you don't need another module in order to make good music. Uh, that's like the lack of modules is not limiting anyone. I would say. Uh, it's rather the other way around that if you have too much at the at the at first that is overwhelming and then you get confused and you lose yourself because uh it's it's not so easy to to master it uh or to do something to make create something useful and that's you know uh, if if it doesn't if it's not fun if it can be hard maybe for half a day, but if it doesn't start to, to, to create some fun moments, like after a week, then you probably are not getting ever into it. Would you say that you are always kind of finding new ways to use granular synthesis, for example, or is the process the same as it was when you first started using it? Maybe I use it with uh, different material uh, and uh, I start to use some uh, additional tools. Uh, I get more into, as I said, I, I got more into the tools that were like <laughs> lying there in front of me for decades already <laughs> and I never used it. Uh, so uh, I got into that nowadays more, um, but then it's it's you know, adding some other aspects. The the biggest new territory that that I started to adopt for myself is uh, certainly the visual part. So um, I started to make videos for uh, my album in that came out in 2018 and uh, 5.1.5.9.3. Uh, and now for Ferrum, for the new album on Editions Mego, I'm uh, uh, creating an uh, audiovisual live set where I use a similar approach to making the videos, but technically I make it very differently because um, I create... I generate them live so that I'm more flexible with the music, whereas uh, the way I made the videos for for the previous album was 
in the in the video editing software. So I had the videos ready and I could use some loops of it to maybe lengthen like certain parts of the tracks when I played live, but not like completely rearrange everything and uh, because then the music wouldn't wouldn't uh, fit with the with the video anymore. So now I I I uh, learned created and for me new technique how to create these visuals and and I do them completely live together with the music. So that's something very new for me and uh, very normal for a lot of other people. Uh, but that's an aspect where I can say I, I did again something that I had to learn more or less from, from scratch. So I'm part of a subreddit about techno production and I kind of opened up the floor for people to submit their questions for you. And so one user, uh, Marie Orsic, wanted to know about your creative process and kind of how you refine the scope of your interests. Like what makes this particular thing uh, worth investigating over other things? Like, is it just a repeated iteration until something works? Or do you always have this kind of clear, defined direction that you want to go in to begin with? Well, I wish I had, I must say, because it it really, like, it makes me a lot faster and it, it makes me a lot clearer in, in how I'm proceeding. The... The clearer and the more simple the the initial point is, the faster and the better I would say, and the the more um, consistent the the artistic output is. So uh, yeah, I'm looking, and I think I, I found I found already like an idea that might not be that special that like the ones before for Ferrum for example but the next one is that I got I got my first module so <laughs> I'm, I'm now officially owner of a Eurorack model and actually it's three Eurorack models but it's that's still very limited and it's uh, perfect for creating good drum and percussion sounds. Uh, so my aim is for the next album that should come out on Imbalance uh, Computer Music again, uh, to create one album only with this little, with, with the sounds that I create from this little desktop Eurorack 3 some module that is basically like a drum sound generator and some LFO and uh, envelope generator. So uh, th that's also quite limited, and let's see how it goes. So what about where uh, Ferrum is concerned? Like, how did you decide on metals as your basic material for recording? Like, why metal and not glass or wood or paper? Mm. I think the, the sonic properties of metal are just super fascinating and very rich there are always these rich harmonics in in metal and uh, at the same time it can be quite brutal and cold and hard so it has this sort of like ambivalence to it there the beautiful harmonies and it has a 
harsh characteristics oftentimes. And so what were the next steps that you took into like turning the basic recordings into the actual completed music? Like, is there a, a method or a technique that you can point to in the creation of this record? Well, what I did with Ferrum is probably a quite good way how to to proceed with evolving material. Um, I had, and I was in a very lucky position, I could do a couple of live sets uh, where uh, I played early versions of Ferrum and, and tested like first approaches and then got a feeling for the material. This is something I really learned while playing live that uh, when you play a work live for the first time, uh, it's, it's completely new and strange. It somehow feels very strange and that I know that I'm not the only one who has this this kind of uh, impression. And it's a lot of my colleagues uh, who told me like similar things. And then the more often you play it, the more you get a grip on the material. That's really like the best way how I can describe what I mean. And uh, with Ferrum, I could get a grip on the material while I was evolving it. The first uh, live act, uh, Ferrum Live, I played was for Art's birthday, which is a perfect occasion because there, there are these like uh, radio stations, international network of radio stations, and each January they uh, celebrate the birthday of Art. And I think it's on the 14th of January or some, some random date that somebody came up with. <laughs> and it is sort of in a, in a Dadaistic tradition, the arts birthday. And I was invited by the Austrian uh, broadcasting station to participate with a, with a live set. And that was like uh, Ferrum A. That was the very first ferrum, and that lasted only like 15 minutes, and uh, it all uh, evolved from there. And I had two more or three more occasions where I could play it live, and that was extremely helpful uh, to get a feeling for the, the material, to get a feeling for what is missing, for example. And uh, this is, for example, why I created Ferrum 5, that's a track that is very like bass heavy with like fast drums, um, because I I I needed some some counterpoint to the to the lush things, <laughs> to the more ambient stuff, and uh, so th this was this was really extremely helpful for the development of the of the album for sure so this is another reddit question uh from a user called sick curiosity and they wanted to know about your interest in field recordings if you use them in your work um and how you choose to use those sounds like would you consider the metal sounds in ferrum to be field recordings for example or maybe the voices that you used for your other projects uh is that a field recording well, I'm not so sure how people define field recording. I have the impression that uh, it's oftentimes a very wide definition. And if it's a wide definition, then yes, 
all these recordings can be summarized as uh, field recordings. Personally, I would see it a bit differently. I would say that field recordings are when you walk around and you encounter something that is happening beyond your control and you just record it and then you use it. I think th this is like the typical kind of uh, field recording that you walk around in nature and you record the birds singing or mm -hmm. the water drops, uh, the raindrops or thunder or uh, the, 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 the sounds of traffic in the city or people talking in the train station, etc. I think these are like classical field recordings. And in that sense, what I used... I never used field recordings, if we call, you know, define it in this way. What role does hardware play for you in terms of experimentation? Like, I guess initially I was thinking that there are only so many ways you can use hardware to make music, but maybe that's not the case? Um, no, there are, there are trillions of ways how to use hardware because uh, a lot of hardware nowadays is digital anyway so uh, you know the options are pretty much limitless and you can connect everything um, and then you could consider a computer I mean a computer is hardware as well yeah. <laughs> it's not only software or, or the iPad I think maybe the iPad is a good example because the, the, the app I'm using makes very good use of the possibilities of the interface an iPad has. So I can actually really like touch and grab the clouds of grains and drag them over an uh, audio file that lies under, on the quotation marks, under the grain cloud uh, because I see the waveform so I can really like play with my hands uh, on the iPad with the grain clouds and the audio forms, waveforms. So um, yeah, that's, there is definitely a very strong hardware aspect to it even though it's an app and it's software by nature. In our discussion before this interview, you mentioned a device in progress. I think it was the PL89. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's the pitch loop, um, and it has been. Uh, it's it's also a device Robert Henkin made. It's not been released yet, but I'm lucky enough to be able to use it because I, I like it really a lot. It's been inspired by a, a 1980s uh, French uh, device by the company called Publisson. And um, yeah, it can uh, do like on two channels, left channel and right channel, it can do all sorts of nice feedback uh, loops and pitch changes. So on Ferrum, you can hear it extensively. It's like whenever like the, the pitch goes up and down or uh, goes back and forth and uh, or, or uh, yeah, all the, the, the playful things on the, on the album with pitch or most of them are actually 
is actually through this effect, the pitch loop effect that Robert built. And uh, yeah, it's it's quite complex and I love to use it live as well. I'm actually uh, using it in all my live sets. I implemented it even for for the old album, like the previous album. Uh, and I just use, for when, I, when I play quadraphonic, then I have one pitch loop uh, device for the front two speakers and another pitch loop device for the back speakers. And then I send some audio signal in, into both of them at the same time. And then you get all these kind of delays in different pitches of the uh, same material, but on every side of the room in, the, in a slightly different quality. So that's quite rewarding and a lot of fun as an effect f to play live. Yeah, this this was really very inspirational for me also to make the album. So obviously there's a lot of room for experimentation and exploration when you're in the studio, which we've talked about. Um, and you just mentioned live performance, which I think is really interesting. Like, can you talk a bit more about uh, multi-channel live performance? Like what, what does that mean exactly? And how does that give you room for improvisation or experimentation? Well, it's definitely uh, experimentation because I never quite know the outcome, I can imagine a lot, but I never know how it will turn out on location, on the spot. Um, the thing is that uh, every, every space has its particular acoustics and every time I go somewhere and I play a concert, I have some time for sound check, but that time is limited. So it's uh, usually it's one hour and uh, within that one hour I have to find out whether like what I prepared makes sense or not. And uh, yeah, this is uh, sometimes uh, challenging. And uh, but maybe go back to the beginning of what is multi-channel. Multi-channel means that you have uh, more than one uh, sound source that is, let's say, one speaker. Uh, let's say it's a full range speaker that uh, goes from the sub bases up to the highest highs that you want to have. So you have full range speakers, one sound source. And then um, in the stereo setup that most people are familiar with, you so, have, uh, it's, it's like also a multi-channel setup multi -channel with two channels. Uh, two one channel is setup. the left side channel and the other one is the right side channel. And the two audio uh, streams for left and right are slightly different. And this creates a, a panoramic field of sound. Uh, and then imagine that you do not only have two of those, but you have, let's say, four of those. And if you if you ever paid attention when list, when standing in front of a stereo PA, let's say, what the impression of room that you have depends a lot on where you are standing in relation to the speakers. So ideally, you have a triangle. You're like in front of the speakers, and both speakers are uh, 
the distance to both speakers is the same and the distance between the two speakers it's also the same like uh, the distance between you and the speakers. So in German, that will be a gleichschenkeliges <laughs> Dreieck, but I don't know the expression <laughs> in English, so it's uh, geometric. Uh, anyhow, so this is the ideal uh, listening position for, for a stereo setup. And equally, for a quadraphonic setup, you would have uh, four speakers, and the ideal listening position is right in the middle between these four speakers. Let's say the four speakers are more or less in the corners uh, of, of the audience area or the listening space, and the sweet spot is right in the center of the, of the uh, audience area. But then you can do a lot of other things as well. You can do surround sound, which is also quadraphonic. What I just described is surround sound. But you can do other things. You can do whatever you come up with where you are not creating a surround sound with its immersive qualities, but maybe you create, um, I don't know, a, a large broad wall uh, where where sounds come from the far left and go all the way through to the far right, for example, uh, or uh, from some people try to do something like three-dimensional, the monome system in Berlin, for example, might have heard about it. Uh, that uh, that extends this like two-dimensional surround sound approach with the third dimension in the height of the room. So you have some sounds coming from the floor and others from the ceiling, uh, which is tricky because the human ear is very sensitive to uh, the two dimensions, left and right and front and back, but less sensitive to uh, the third dimension, like how high or low a sound comes. So uh, using all, all uh, such information and such possibilities with uh, certain speakers and certain speaker setups and how the speakers are directed is just a lot of, yeah, it's, it's very interesting and, and astonishing sometimes because there are so many acoustic effects that that are sometimes not so easy to predict and and you just find out by uh, setting up the speakers or, or pointing them in a slightly different direction and you get a very different result in how it sounds so it's just another dimension to the music apart from tonality and harmonics and rhythmicality and timbre. Space is another dimension. Does it kind of feel like every performance, even if it's for the same piece of music, can be different based on the space? Like you finding these different setups or these different acoustic tricks, like it must be very interesting to tour with a piece uh, and then have it be so different every time you play it. Yes, that's absolutely Correct. Um, I had some very nice experiences, uh, sometimes really surprising when I thought 
uh, this is going to be really difficult because of the architecture and the acoustic properties of a space. For example, the lobby of the Staatstheater in Stuttgart, Schauspielhaus Stuttgart. And, uh, but then it turned out to be really, really good and uh, everything uh, sounded really interesting. Also because I had a great help from the local crew and they were very much into acoustics and, and uh, multi-channel setups, so that was great. It was really spread out very, very widely and uh, I had a, a lot of fun uh, playing there. And other times when I think, ah, oh, that must be awesome, then for some reason something doesn't work so well or the experience is not as good as I expect it to be. So there is there's always room for uncertainty and good surprises and sometimes not so good surprises. <laughs> And does that vary depending on whether it's like a club that you're performing in or a theater venue or like an opera house sort of thing? Obviously, these have very different sound capabilities. Um, so what is that like for you? Well, it, it depends a lot from uh, the time and planning capacities available. So the more the team uh of the venue is into it and and ready to cooperate and and uh, understands what it is about, uh, then the better for me as well because I get the information I need quickly and uh, they uh, they can prepare the space and and uh, all the equipment in a way that uh, it is really easy to, to do like some final adjustments during the limited time of sound check. Um, whereas usually uh, in, in a typical club, um, they have like day-to-day -day business and there is, there are very, <laughs> there is very limited capacity for uh, changes and adaptions and uh, most of the times, for example, they have four speakers in the four rooms, uh, in the four corners of the rooms, but uh, they can't do a quadraphonic setup because all the cabling and everything is fixed, and they always say it's impossible, and uh, yeah, or a lot of times at least, and that makes me a bit sad sometimes, but uh, I can also, I mean, you know, it uh, a lot of times clubs run on limited capacities and and resources in general. So it's always a trade off what you can demand and and what you won't do and how like how much you insist on things or not. But usually for festivals. Um, for example, it's it's no problem at all. Right. And so what about for your new album? I know that you were supposed to do the album launch at Trauma Bar, but that was just before this whole coronavirus crisis started and the event ended up getting cancelled. But what was your plan for that before all of this happened? Yeah, uh, Corona Bar is... Uh, <laughs> corona Bar. <laughs> Very funny. 
uh, actually, Trauma Bar was uh, the first club in Berlin that canceled events for, for the coronavirus. Uh, yeah, um, the plan there was to use a quadraphonic speaker setup. Uh, that was... Uh, that is actually a bit difficult there because they have uh, they have a nice function one uh, PA, but the speakers are set like hung in a fixed position and it's not really like uh, where they ideally would be for a surround sound uh, setup. But we found a way uh, that we could hang two uh, speakers on a different space. Um, and additionally, I would have used two smaller speakers like fills uh, coming from, from the ceiling um, for some additional sounds that, that contribute to a special uh, immersive surround sound experience. Yeah, so it would have been a six-channel, multi-channel multi setup. Are you hoping to have the event when all of this is over? Yes. Most definitely, um, because actually they already paid the fee, so I and nobody asked the money back yet. <laughs> so I'm assuming that it is postponed, but we don't have, of course, we don't have a new date yet. How do these performance experiences, both in clubs and in other venues, influence you in the studio, or do they influence you in the studio? Yeah, absolutely. They do influence me in the sense that uh, I, I collect, like, every, every experience is, contributes to a general feeling for the music. And I think I mentioned this earlier, to get a grip on the material. So every performance totally helps and uh, gives feedback of, for just one example would be, like uh, how music sounds loud in contrast to the, how the same mix down and music sounds on the lower level. So uh, the perception is very different. And the more you hear like the same mix down in a very, on a very loud volume or a, a very strong PA uh, as opposed to uh, at home or on a very low volume, the more you learn and you learn to relate these two and uh, you learn to, to adapt your mixes uh, for, for example, very loud <laughs> performance or not. So uh, that usually leads to lo lower basses. And when you're at home, you turn up the basses or many people tend to turn up the basses and then they are overwhelming and then they're dominating everything. If, on the, on the big system with proper subwoofers and stuff. Uh, so uh, these experiences are incredibly valuable. And of course, they are also very valuable for me for um, imagining uh, the multi-channel things that I do, because usually I prepare them without having multiple speakers around me. So it's it's just happening in my head, and I imagine what it I want it to be, and then I hear it in real life only like in the venue, and and not not beforehand. So um, that works 
pretty well for simple things, but uh, the more complex the ideas become and the and and uh, yeah, the more difficult becomes this realization, of course. So would you say that you're composing more for live listening or at home listening, or is it really finding a balance between the two? It's it's a balance between the two, uh, especially since uh, the music I play live is some sort of, most of the times it is a sort of listening music. So uh, it's it's a, I would say it's a balance. And of course, the live aspect is different again because uh, usual home listening is in a stereo setup for most people. So uh, there are usually two versions of, of a work. The one is like a stereo mix down and the other one is the live version. Nevertheless, I would not separate this, uh, these two too much. So what are you interested in these days where experimentation in the studio is concerned? Like, do you find yourself revisiting past ideas to kind of continue to work on them? Or are you always looking for new ideas? Hmm. Uh, there might be some recurring ideas, uh, for sure. But then um, I'm also... I. The first album came out very late. That was two years ago after having worked with music and, and making music for more than two decades. So in this first album, a lot of old ideas uh, manifested themselves. Um, and nowadays, after that was done, uh, it, it was some sort of relief, I must say, because I finally found like uh, a closing point for a lot of the old ideas. So after that, I was really happy and, and uh, to, to be able to, to turn my, my attention and and my resources to something new and a new idea. Uh, but that doesn't mean that old ideas are completely out of sight. There might be some recurring things, like uh, at some point, I don't know, it, it sounds a bit silly, but there there is a very old idea and I couldn't really like find an artistically satisfying um, realization of that idea and that is that like a slow transition almost unrecognizable transition from uh, complete anarchic uh, noise uh, to concrete musical forms and um, maybe I will work on that at some point but for now it's more and I think I also mentioned this already, like the, the, the next album is concentration on these new three little modules that I have <laughs> and, and create a new longer work uh, with those. So it's, it's rather something new because that keeps me focused. Where do you hope that these experiments will take you musically in the future? Like uh, what else are you interested in that you haven't worked with yet? Hmm. Uh, probably 
uh, on a, uh, probably some more uh, harmonic stuff. Usually my, my music is, is very um, un or inharmonic or there, it's, it's characterized by an absence of harmonies. Um, and maybe I will at some point arrive somewhere where I can, I feel good about um, incorporating more harmonic stuff or melodic stuff even. I don't know about that. I'm often more fascinated and interested in, in noises, but uh, that might change. I don't know. Uh, in general, I feel that there is so much more room for uh, improvement and refinement and uh, maybe even not not so much refinement, but maybe more focused use of of high energy elements or music or sounds or i don't know it could be more brutal or it could be could be simpler or more monotonous or i'm not sure i'm not sure where where the path will lead me but uh, uh definitely evolvement that's always important